You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We appreciate you tuning in to one of our pre-recorded episodes. Mark, to the grocery store, pharmacy, or bank, or you were going to go to uh, essential workers, and that was it. No questions asked. If you were outside without a permit, you're going to be fine. And uh, everyone understand, understood that, and everyone stayed in. Everyone did what they were supposed to do. Not were, they like doing it, good, were they doing good in terms of uh, wearing masks here in North Carolina? We're seeing a lot of folks that still aren't wearing the mask uh, and not doing a good job of doing that in terms of uh, trying to um, halt the spread. Yeah, it, I, you know, I see, I watch the news sometimes, and I see people protesting in these cities, and I I don't understand it. I, I really don't understand it. And from a global perspective, uh, people have come to the conclusion that the USA has basically lost its mind. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been thinking that for a, a number of years about us globally, uh, particularly with kind of the political landscape that is going on in the uh, United States and everything. So I think a lot of folks uh, have been having that kind of... Uh, concerned about us for a uh, number of years. Yeah. How did you get involved in the uh, global business world and everything? Because like I said, I've been watching you uh, on Shree and I know that you've been definitely involved in that for a uh, number of years, but just tell me how you got involved in the whole global um, economical situation, because that's not something that a lot of us do on a regular basis. Well, it started back, um, I think it was, I worked for Martha Stewart for like nine years and I was vice president of human resources there. And when I left there, I had an opportunity to travel to China as a global ambassador for human resources. They took about 30 of us from the US as a part of a group and we spent like three weeks between Beijing, Shanghai, and I think Guangzhou. And that kind of piqued my interest at that time. And the entire time I was there, I was trying to find a job there. But it didn't work out and I came back and I started working for Xerox and I was uh, heading up one of their consulting practices. And uh, I come in one day, check my email and there was an email from a headhunter that had seen my profile on LinkedIn. And she said, very interesting background. Would you be interested in a, an opportunity in the Middle East, specifically Riyadh, Saudi Arabia? And I jumped at it. And within a matter of six weeks, I was on a flight flying from New York to Riyadh. And I lived there for a little over a year and a half. And then there was an opportunity came up here in Dubai as CEO for a great place to work. And I was able to get that. And I got to Dubai where I really wanted to live because living in Riyadh at that time was very restrictive. Uh, it's loosened up somewhat now, but during that time, it was extremely restrictive. And coming from New York, it was quite an adjustment. And I knew I couldn't, couldn't live there for a period of time. So I came to Dubai as a CEO. And by then, I was trying to think of how can I transition to the next stage. And I just opened a firm uh, after my contract was up, uh, opened a consulting firm. And like got my license like on a Tuesday or Wednesday and I started working the next week on a project. 
and it just kind of took off from there. So I started, I represent a couple of companies out of the U.S. I do my own consulting and, um, you know, things just took off. How do you think we're doing in terms of uh, the global market in terms of the U.S. being recognized? I mean, for a number of years, the U.S., I think, was seen as the global leader economically, but now I'm wondering if we're not taking a backseat to some of the other countries and things of that nature, countries like Japan, countries like I would even argue India and some other places. But how do you think we're doing in terms of being a global force? Not any, not anymore. I mean, there was a time. Um, we're kind of the laughing stock of the world now. Um, I was in Vietnam last year for, I was there for about a week on a project. And I just noticed this country. I, you know, I never uh, went to the services, anything like that, but I had a lot of friends that got killed in Vietnam. And this company has come, I mean, this country has made a tremendous uh, return to being one of the global emerging markets. And I worked for, I did a project for a company, the Ben, ben Group, which is privately owned. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're into seven or eight different business verticals from automobile manufacturing to hospitality, uh, you name it. Um, and I looked at the entrepreneurial drive in the, in the Asia Pacific region, total, totally. And it's just so much different. Like kids will come out of school. Everyone is looking to start something. No one is specifically looking for a job. They may be looking for a job for a period of time, but their eyes are on the horizon as to see what's next. And that's what's different. Um, And I'm sure the same thing is in U.S., but but to a a greater degree in the APAC region, it's that drive to start something. Um, I have business partners in Singapore, and these guys are in their 30s. Um, they were working for a company till I got the hang of it. Cool, I started their own firm. And so this is the kind of kind of way it is. And I think one of the things that bothers me about folk, I'll say folk, is the fact that try and become an entrepreneur. I mean, it's it's not you got to have the greatest. Even if you went to a vacant store and opened a store for something. Um, so I'll say that the entrepreneurial drive is heavier in this part of the region, even in the Middle East, than it is in the U.S. because they're not looking for a job. If they're looking for a job, it's only temporary until I can pull out and do something else. No one is looking to go work for an organization hoping they could be there for 20 years. And that's what's going on in the U.S. I've noticed that for a number of years, that people seem to be um, having that whole job mentality of just wanting a job and a job that you stay in for 10, 15, 20 years things of that nature. Um, some of my friends have actually compared it to the plantation mentality. Um, and I know that that's a term that some folks have used that are uh, more political activists and things of that nature. But yeah. I don't know that I see enough folks that are trying to do business on a regular and consistent basis and trying to develop their own business. And I'm wondering if part of that is in our education system, because a lot of times our education system encourages people to go to work for somebody else and things of that nature, both not just on the grade school level, but I would even argue on the college level. I mean, you have some great schools. I'm here in Durham and we have Duke, which has the Fuquay School of Business and some others, but um, yeah. of course, Harvard has some great business departments, but so many of our colleges seem to concentrate on just teaching people to go get a job. And for that job, um, it's kind of like that stereotype of get the job, 
get the wife, um, you know, have the 2.5 kid. Yeah, check out, check fence. out all the boxes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't really attribute it to education because uh, a lot of people that are, you know, I know people that have gone to Harvard Business School and they've come out with a drive to open their own business. They were never looking to be that long-term employee. And I knew that one day, even when I was growing up, I didn't. I knew I never wanted a job to go work for somebody else. I, when I, I started at Martha Stewart as a trainer, that's the longest tenure I've ever had on a job. Uh, and I stayed there for nine and a half years. I started as a trainer. I ended as vice president of human resources. But I always had in the back of my mind that that's what I wanted to do. Now, for a period of time before I went there, I opened a, uh, there was a gentleman, an older white gentleman who owned a convenience store in East Orange, New Jersey. And I heard someone say he was going to sell it. He wanted to sell it. And I went to him and struck a deal, mortgaged my house, and I bought that store. And I turned it into kind of a black version of a, con of a convenience store which meant that I had bread pudding, I had coconut cakes, I had German chocolate cakes, I had sweet potato pies, all those kind of delicacies. Um, hero sandwiches, large sandwiches, all those kind of things. But there was a lot of vacant stores there and no one was opening stores. But meanwhile, everyone's complaining about the neighborhood is being taken over. And I said, put your money together and, and open a store. You know, these guys want to rent these stores and open a store, come up with an idea, buy some goods and start selling it. I look here in Dubai and you have so many people from other countries that have come here and opened up businesses. From Indians, from, from Europe, like myself, um, because the opportunity is there. And you just have to spec it out put your plan together and try something. So when I was, the last role I had as CEO, um, I, it was about time that I knew I wasn't gonna want to do this anymore. So my thought was, do I pack it up and go back to USA and try and do something there? So I said, no, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna give it one year. Cause it's not a, it doesn't cost a lot. You can go, you can go out tomorrow morning and be registered within by 24 hours and have a business license. That's just how easy it is. And I said, you know what? I'll give it a year. Now, one of the things I did when I was in Saudi Arabia, when I look back on it, and it was the smartest thing I, that I have ever done was that I started speaking at conferences hmm. because when I was living in Saudi, there was nothing to do absolutely nothing to do. So I, I did a search online for uh, HR, conference, HR conferences in the Middle East. And I got a list of about 20. So I took the top three, sent the, found out who was one of the organizers, sent the person a note, here's who I am, New York based, speak at conferences, getting settled here, if anyone backs out of your conference, if you get me a flight, I'll present. I sent that out on a Thursday morning. By Sunday night, I had three offers. Wow, three people had already backed out of their 
Well, no, no, I don't know whether they backed out or not, but I, but I wasn't going to write you to say, can I speak? Right. Please help me to speak. I, no, I said, I'm your backup. If anyone backs out, let me know. And for some reason or another, that hit, because when you're in a conference business, mm -hmm. you'd be surprised how many times the day before the conference, someone calls and said, something came up and I can't make it. Happens all the time. And I knew that. So when I sent this note, on this Thursday, I got a note back and I was flying to Istanbul, um, Zagreb, and I flew to, I think, Hong Kong. I, I'm sorry, Singapore. Now, I know one of the things that people have been talking about doing, I was wondering if you think that this is going to happen um, or what your thoughts are, but some people have been talking about that after we get out of this um, COVID era, that travel will kind of like come back in force because a lot of countries are actually reaching out. I know like even some of the African countries apparently have been reaching out to try to get some of the citizens of the United States, particularly African-Americans to come to their country to help with the building of the economy. Do you think that this will, is, is this happening and will this continue to happen once we get on these more travel kind of things? I know I was earlier talking today to a friend of mine in Vegas and they were actually telling me that I need to fly out there just to visit them because it's only like, an, I think they said an $11 flight on Frontier. So I know the airlines are yeah. struggling, yeah. so they're trying to get whatever they can get going flight-wise. Yeah, well, see, my because of the type of work I do, I'm normally on a flight in a different country every week. And so as a result of, as a result of that, all of that's over with for now. My last trip was to Bangkok right before they closed it down. Now, I'm still in touch with my people across the globe, and everybody's just kind of waiting because they know it's going to start back up, and um, the airlines are going to open back up, and um, that's going to be it. I mean, the airline industry is not going to go under. Some weaker uh, uh, companies may not make it, but I never I, I never would fly those little budget airlines anyway. I was always would fly the Emirates and the uh, Qatar Airways and so they're backed by the government and they're, they're going to come back in business. I mean, the way that I look at the virus, it's just kind of a lull now. Mm -hmm. So I've been online. Um, I, online, I was, last week I was online every day. I did, I did four webinars last week and I, did a, I conducted a training session online. Right before you, I did an interview for because I, I have um, this series called the CEO series where I interview top executives. So I interviewed a buddy of mine who's a senior executive at Nissan on the customer experience. So, and that was right after I came up from the office because it, the day was the first day from lockdown. So my everyone's model now was this, right? And this is going to be a hybrid. It can't. You can't do this. You can't continue to conduct business like this, right? You know, um, so I look at this as kind of a lull, and it's going to bounce back. I got a project starting in Switzerland starts in July, and we've been talking back and forth. So we already have dates for July. I'm in there. I think Zurich or it's Zurich. I'm in Zurich for about a week. I leave Zurich. I go to London, and I leave London, and I go to New York. So everyone is already talking about dates. So we had to throw June, June away because we wanted to make sure the skies were open. So it's July, August, September. 
And, and by that time, all of my work in Asia Pacific region, specifically Singapore, Hong Kong, and, and uh, Kuala Lumpur, all open up again. So it's, if you could make it through the low, and this is just my thought, it'll be okay. Now you said it's a low, but I've actually had some friends that are in the um, field of education and the hiring at like college level. And they're actually thinking that while it's a low, that it could change the way that we do business. And I was wondering, you did say that you've done several of these webinars on Zoom and WebEx and things of that nature. So do you think that we're gonna see some of this continuing because they're actually thinking that even some of the college kids may not come as much to the campuses. They're actually, I have at least a few friends that are wondering even about the future of the physical campus because of what's going on with so many people doing online learning that they're thinking that it could even endanger the uh, campus life and the campus style. Yeah. I, I don't see that. I see it as a hybrid. And you know what, you know what confirmed my thoughts? When Shri had uh, those two young people on his mm -hmm. show, yeah, I remember. And was asked that question. I said, no. I said, no, this is okay. But, you know, we prefer to be back interacting. And everybody does, you know. When, so I did this online uh, three-day session. And when we finished, one of the ladies said, you know, I really didn't want to sign up for this. She said, because to sit and look at a screen, try and learn that way, and we can't really interact. And we did interact. She said, but this was a great session. Um, but I would much prefer if you could come to our company and do something there where everybody's in the room. Right. So, and the young kids said that this is great and it will probably be a hybrid and it will never be just online 24 seven. Right. And, it, and if it comes, that's, that they probably will not come in my lifetime, but what, what it has shown is that companies can now operate. So I'll give you an example of that. In my discussion, uh, I did a group in the Philippines uh, last Friday, last week, and they were saying that someone on the call said that their company was uh, anti-work from home. Mm -hmm. Now it's work from home. People are enjoying that. Now the CEO who was adamant about not is now rethinking it. And what they may do is a hybrid. So the companies that already had work from home policies, nothing's really going to change, but people will still come in. From a, from a facilities perspective, you're going to find a lot of companies and it will impact the, the, the uh, real estate market. I don't need three floors anymore because right. if I do a 50% break in my workforce, I have 50% in one day, 50% in, in another day. Everybody uses a hot desk. You, you sign or you make a reservation, you come in, you work for two hours and work for the day, and that's it. So the, I, I could physically see that you may have a situation whereby you may have 30% of the workforce. Now here in Dubai, they, everything open today, you can have 30% of your workforce in at any given time. You can't max out over 30%. So what happens when this changes and now we can go back to work with precaution, but maybe the new rule is 30%, maybe the new rule is 50%. So I think all of what's gonna happen here is that the work model that was so rigid is not gonna loosen up somewhat, but you can never have 100% of one thing anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. 
And I've got friends that are working in the creative field and they're kind of wondering about how it's going to impact them even when we come back because I'm on the board of the Carolina Theater, which is uh, one of our medium-sized theaters here. And they're thinking about possibly opening up in the summer or uh, like around July, like you said, but doing yeah. like, you know, every three seats. So it's a thousand seater. So instead mm -hmm. it'll be a 300 seater and they're yeah. trying to figure out how that's going to work economic because they're still trying to maintain that social distance concept. Exactly, exactly. And I got on my reading list now, there was an article, I, I want to say it was from McKinsey, but it was concerning the museum industry. Yeah. Um, fine arts, um, exhibits. And I can, I can visually see the entire exhibit from my laptop. And maybe I'd log in, maybe i pay, whatever it is. But that's a that's a different model from the doors open at nine and you walk around till four. Right. And maybe two days a week. So I'm interesting to see the concept of this article. But one of the things I've been kind of watching and reading about is that our entire work model will change. And it's kind of like the, the quote from Dickens, it's the best of times and the worst of times. It depends upon your lens. Yeah. But, but as you said, the education, industry, education field or industry is totally disrupted. Um, and it, but I don't ever think it will go to 100% model. Nothing will be that 100% workforce, five floors in a building. I think that's one of the things that's going to change. Yeah, I can see, I can see that now. I've actually got a good friend. Um, they actually work in that gig economy. Um, and they're doing uh, DoorDash, which is very popular around now. And they're doing yeah. DoorDash and Grubhub, which is kind of the um, food delivery. But their yeah. day job is they do um, computer tech support work for a, um, mm -hmm. I think it's a company in India, that's based in India. But yeah. they were working in a small town here called Kerry in a physical building. And all the workers, when Corona came around and COVID, they got shift to their homes. And they've actually told me several times that while they like getting out of the house doing the delivery and contactless delivery more particularly is what they enjoy. They're not looking forward to going back to the office. So they're like saying, and that apparently several of the people were having one of these kind of calls, a conference call, and were asked, you know, do you want to come back? And the vast majority were like, no, if we can stay here and do our work from the home, we would love to do that even after things um, alleviate a little bit. Exactly. So what's going to happen with that is the organizations that remain rigid are going to lose people. So you can't come back and say, okay, we got to go back to what we were before. Only in special circumstances are you allowed to work home. And I see my friends going back and they're getting jobs and their job says, we don't care where you do it from as long as you do it. So companies will be forced to do it because the turnover cost is going to increase. If I've been exposed to working from home and I pretty much figured it out and mastered because that's a transition of mindset when you're in the office and all of a sudden now you can work from home. That's a mindset shift. So that the rigidity of an organization who tries to cling to the past and the mode of operation from the past with no elasticity, it's pretty much over. It's over with as, as it relates to talent because people aren't gonna put up with it because they now have experienced something new and 
as I said, once you figure it out, husband and wife home together, that could be challenging. <laughs> um, but you get into that groove and then you're telling me on Monday, I gotta come back and be sitting in this physical place from nine until five every day? No, not gonna work. I wonder if we're not gonna see a rise in what you're all about, which is entrepreneurship. Because I know that um, we're seeing a lot of people, I mean, I think in the United States is something like, it's a ridiculous amount of unemployment that's out there now in terms of people yeah. being laid off and things of that nature. So they're being forced to do things. Like I mentioned a friend and she still has her job, but she's doing the gig economy. I've seen other people that are out there driving for different businesses. I'm seeing people that are uh, trying to do things, even some of the creatives um, doing presentations and then either using Venmo or Cash App in order to get paid. And then, you know, you're seeing more and more people trying to create entrepreneurship businesses in this hard time. So. I'm wondering, are we going to see more of a entrepreneurship boom taking place because people are being forced into entrepreneurship, even those that might have been thinking more along the lines of that day-to-day -day kind of working yeah. nine to five, uh, eight to five or whatever? I think that, you know, this entrepreneurial mindset is a, you operate from faith and believing that this is going to happen. I'm right. not talking so much about religion and tying that into it, but I'm, if you've got an idea, you, you have a mindset that you don't look at the obstacles in front of you. You just keep moving. You know, my mother, my mother's favorite phrase was a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And you think of something and you say, well, let me do this. Let me call this. But that takes a certain mindset because ever since I was a kid, I, every I know so many people that just talk it. They want to start their own business. They want to do this, want to do this. And it's just talk because it's the, it's the cool talk to say, I got my idea on something. But if I see you a year later or six months and you still telling me the same story, my, my response is, wait, we had this six months ago. Walk me through the steps you've taken since that time to move the needle along, even if it's a small step, because you have to start with steps. And if you're still, while I'm still trying to figure things out, I know right away that's just a lot of uh, crap, you know. I don't think, I think people are afraid too because, you know, I've been reading about, um, you know, check, a check-to-check -check kind of mentality and then when the check doesn't get here, you don't have it and you're worried about eating and all those things, which is normal. I mean, I understand that. But if you're trying to start something, there may be some weeks you don't get paid and you just have to assume that's part of it. Um, and you, you just continue on um, and you may not be able to see the next step, but you just keep stepping. And I've, one of the things I've always figured out is that if you keep moving, it's go, so the sky's going to open up, something's going to happen, but you can't sit there and not do anything. And it's just a whole lot of this. Yeah. When somebody yeah. tells you they want to be an entrepreneur, is there any sort of like um, checklist that you have for them? Like, do, do they have to have in your mind a certain amount of capital or a certain amount of time dedicated? Or have you seen people that have done it with little to no capital and still been successful? Because I know some people that want to have a checklist. They want you to have like, you know, say $1,000 in the bank or um, they want you to have a dedicated That's amount of time. That's going to depend upon the business you're in. So when I opened my convenience store, 
I had to pay the guy for it. Then I had to stock a store. I had a big store. I had to stock it, which means the grocery wholesaler, the, the milk guy, the soda guy, the groceries guy, and to fill that store up was probably five to seven thousand back then. Yeah. Probably would be double that now. And you know, people come in and buy, and you take whatever you need out, out at the end of the week, and you it, you keep growing it like that. Um, but that was a capital intensive business. A consulting business is not a capital intensive business. Once you open up, you can work out of your house if that's what you decide to do, and you just go out and try and find clients. But I would hope you would have had something lined up. Right. So I say that to say when I got my license, like on a Wednesday or Thursday, I, I had a client sitting there that as soon as I got the license, I could start work. I was still doing work, but legally over here, you're not supposed to do that. So I already had something in the wings and all I had to do was just get the license to go do it. And there was no capital involved in that. So some businesses are capital intensive. I would stay away from that mm -hmm. um, unless you've got the backing to do it. And then you can always find people that are sitting around, sitting on money, and if you can make a business case, they will invest in you. Um, that happens all the time. Someone called me the other week, uh, sent out, uh, sent me a note, and they were trying to raise X amount. They had this idea, and what I listened to a pitch. I went over and I listened to a pitch, and it was a great idea. But right after this happened, everything crashed. Right. And I told them the other week. I said. Can't do it, I said, because you know things have, have tightened up, and we everybody everybody's got to try to figure out what they're going to do next. So, I, I I would just like to see. I would like to see us the same as these other nationalities. I I come from a small town in um in South Carolina, Marion, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with Marion. And I go through Marion and I know, and I come through and I see stores that were owned by white people years ago because they own all the major stores. And every gas station today in, in Marion is owned by Indian, Indian nationality. Nothing's wrong with that. Indian nationality. The grocery stores, Indian nationality. The little the mom and pop stores, Indian nationality. Now, you mean to tell me that you, if, you, if you've grown up, but you didn't see these stores and knowing that the owners of these stores were getting older and were probably looking to sell? Yeah. I sometimes wonder if we don't pay attention to what's going on. I've got a good friend of mine. He's actually been on my podcast before. Um, he goes by the nickname of Mr. Shoe, but he used to, had a science background and opened up first a shoe store, and now he's an upholstery person. But he was telling uh, many of us about what he saw as the growth in the Triangle, and particularly in Durham. And that growth has grown exponentially from what he thought it was going to be. And um, he's told several of us, I would even argue myself included, that, you know, y'all need to get involved, even if you team up and try to find a way to invest. And we're seeing more and more of, lack of a better term, white America and other societies that are investing in that downtown that is growing by leaps and bounds. And there are very few of us that are involved. And, and then way. people are now saying, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. And he, he, he and others are looking like, I told you then, but you didn't want to listen to me. That's the same way in the town I was in. There was a gentleman that owned the liquor store who had been there for years, and myself were the only ones, only ones. And back during this time, 
well, the reason I bought this store because this store had been there for ages and everyone knew the store. But there were stores, vacant stores up and down that strip. And you go through there now and walk in, none of them, the only store that's left that's, that's black owned is the, uh, uh, is the eyeglass store. And yeah. that's it. Out of about maybe 50 stores in, a, in and around the region, wrapped around a major, major supermarket. Hmm. But so when you look at that and you're thinking, and then you hear, so I got, I got into like a little back and forth online last night, and someone was saying, yeah, they're just coming in and taking over. I said, taking over what? Because the store is vacant, they come in and rent the store? Have you ever considered putting some money together, putting everything on the line, and going and running a store? It's the same thing. It, it isn't brain surgery. Right. Even that if it's a grocery store, love. you rent the store, you put some shelves in it, you fill it up with grocery items, and you mark it up. Yep. Now, you mentioned venture capitalists, and I think that that's a wonderful thing. And I know some people that are involved in that have had tremendous success getting venture capital. And I was just wondering if you had any advice for getting that to people that might be listening. But then I'm also hearing a lot of people that are getting very caught up in what I call the, um, the quick fix kind of economy. The whole, and I'm not saying that it's not successful, you may have certain opinions on it, but they're getting caught up in the whole Bitcoin kind of economy. So I was wondering what you think of these kind of like get quick kind of schemes, because in my no. mind, that's what they are, they're get quick schemes. No, you know what, uh, and this is my version of it, success is a grind. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's this thing in life called the iceberg theory. You only see the top of it and people see success. Then I have this picture on my desk because I, 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 you know, I don't work from home. I don't, can't work from home. So I have an office downtown and I have this photo on my desk and it shows the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, you see that just says success. And under that, it says hard work, sleepless nights, and it lists a whole host of things. So some days I sit and I look at that and I said, that's right. Because I'm at this stage now, but people walk and see me walking in, driving nice cars, totally dressed. And they said, wow, they only see the tip of the iceberg. They don't see the underpinnings of that right. to get to that point. So it's a grinding out thing. I mean, even if you were a doctor and you were to open an office and patients started coming in, it takes a while to build that practice. Mm -hmm. If you are a lawyer and you hang a shingle out and you're trying to drum up business being a, a legal counsel or whatever, it takes time. Anything to get rich quick, quick, you can lose it quick. And there's right. coins and all these kinds of things. I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it because it's not for me. Right. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm seeing so many people that are trying to get into that. And I'm like you, I don't understand it either. Now, what about venture capitalists? How would you suggest somebody go about finding the venture capitalists? Because I know a lot of folks are always having their business ideas and they want venture capitalists because they might have an idea that's a little bit more cash extensive, like you just said, and they don't have yeah. necessarily those cash flows themselves. So in your mind, what's the best way to go about trying to find these venture capitalists? Well, you know, in, in every neighborhood or every town, you know people with money. So I think don't get caught up on the venture capitalist. He's a venture capitalist. If they have money or the appearance of money, this is, these are the people you ask. Right. And it could be someone in your town who's retired and who's done well. And if your pitch is strong and you can actually walk them through, tell them the story, 
there may be an opportunity there to say, you know what, I'll give you this to do this. Right. Because people do it all the time. This gentleman, in contact, he was trying to raise a million dollars. And I said, how are you going to do this? He said, you're looking for one investor or you're looking for multiples? He said, no, no, I don't want to do multiples. But if you bundle it and you bring one, you bring a group together of 10 people and everybody puts in 100, we can go with that. So the word venture capitalist is a buzzword. Right. You know, where do you find them? First of all, the ones that you know of venture capitalists, you couldn't get to them anyway. Mm. You know, the guys in, in, in the West are known for that. Um, uh, I forget. Kleiner Perkins is, is right. one in the IT industry. I know a gentleman who's a, uh, a major venture capitalist in New York. He and I were on a, uh, a panel years ago, and we still keep in touch from time to time. Now, he's a venture capitalist. He's invested in so many things. The guy's an uber, uber, uber wealthy, wealthy individual. Um, but he's considered a venture capitalist. Now, because I know him, I could get an audience right. with him. Now, whether he would write a check, that's something that's totally different. If you follow the, if you go back and read the WeWork story, mm -hmm. it's an excellent article on how uh, WeWork, the gentleman that, that founded it, right. was able to secure capital through venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting story for someone thinking that, but that's, that's at a different level. If I'm trying to open a grocery store across the street, they're not even gonna listen to that because they have a threshold. They will only fund deals five to 10 million up. So when you call yourself a venture capitalist, you're in, in a totally different category. That's like trying to buy a car or trying to buy a Mercedes. Right. So that's the top of the food chain. Yeah, because I sometimes wonder, I'm here, like I said, in Durham, and of course, Chapel Hill is nearby. And sometimes we have people here that are always complaining about the athletes because, of course, Duke and UNC have provided tremendous success in the athletic fields that have gone on to professional athletics and they're always wondering why aren't these people coming back and investing in their community and I'm sitting there going like they're trying to like survive on their own things and a lot of them in my opinion don't even have that great of business expertise themselves so a lot of that's, times they don't, they're don't they not the best a, business people in the world. Yeah that's why they go broke right so often but let me just say this because I hear that a lot. Yeah, well, you know, Oprah should be doing this, a bill cut. You know what? You don't know what these people do on their own. Right. You don't know what they're funding on their own. And lots of times people that are in that category are doing things that they don't want their names to be attached to it. If they write a check to send something out, the ones you should be suspect of that's always on the news is showing you I'm giving five million to this because the real authentic person you never know that. Right. They, they would so give when the you money. look at an athlete and say they're not doing anything, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, but, they, but just because it's not all over the news or, or, or they, they won't take an audience with you to listen to some harebrained scheme. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what's the craziest, I'm sure you've had some, what's the craziest scheme that somebody has approached you with that you were just like shocked that they even tried to approach you with that scheme because you've been in the business world for a while so i'm sure you've had some that you just yeah and one one pops out of my mind had this harebrained idea and one of the things that i tend to read a lot I and mean, i read business articles and i read 
about people who were venture capitalists. I read about businessmen who've made it and, and the kind of things they go through. And, and one of the gentlemen said, he said, when I analyze a deal, he said, lots of times, even everyone is gonna fudge the numbers somewhat, mm -hmm. but I wanna listen to the compassion. I wanna listen to whether you thought this through and whether it makes sense, the words you use. So I'm saying this to, to preface what I'm getting ready to say. So this brother has been a, been a friend of mine for years and years. And he pitches me the other week, a couple of months ago, about this idea that he wants to do. I won't go into what the idea was. He wants to do this because he wants to make enough so he can come visit me in Dubai. He wants to become, he wants to become rich and he wants to become this and he wants to become this. nothing about the business model. And he's going on and on and on. So finally, when he finished, I said, you know what? I said, I'm not interested in it. I said, but I tell you what, don't focus on the wealth. Don't focus on trying to attain wealth. Focus on having a strong business model that you could explain it to anybody and it makes sense. I said, because you ramble over 10 different, and he has a Wharton MBA. Wow. And I said, you've been rambling for the past six months with these emails you're sending me. And it all went, the running theme is that I want to get this off the ground so I can be wealthy to build a legacy for my family. It sounds like he was when I see the when, when I see the email come in, I said, do I read? No, I'll read it next week. I said, because I'm not in the mindset set to go through this foolishness. Well, it sounds and, like he was concentrating and, more on the whole concept of being wealthy versus on whatever the product was, and whether it's a product exactly or whether it's a it service. Because and being, to me, the, and being the entrepreneur, right? you know, the buzzword, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. Somebody said, oh, yeah, yeah, Ron's an entrepreneur. I said, no, I own a business and I'm trying to make a business successful. That's what I do. I don't, don't, don't put me in those terms. Yeah, because that is a very much of a buzzword. And I'm, the ones that seem to be successful to me are the ones that have a passion about it, whether it's, like I said, I have some creative entrepreneurs that are having some great businesses. I have some in the spirit world um, in terms of liquors yeah. and things of that nature, and even some in some other business fields. But they all have the common ground that I see in them. And some of them have been on the podcast, some I just know personally. But the common theme is that they all seem to have a passion for their product or a passion for their service. It's not about just the lifestyle because once you get into the it's, lifestyle yeah you've defeated it's the not about the windfall that's coming in and all those kind of things it's not about that you know my father i grew up in marion south carolina and my father owned a taxi company and i used to drive taxi on weekends and i always when i fly to a country i enjoyed riding with the taxis and tell them my story and you know that kind of thing and but i always watched him very, very successful at what he did that led into other things owning property and partial interest in liquor store but just a hard working guy and would not even he could not even spell the word entrepreneur mm -hmm. but he was a classic example of someone eighth grade education but who was extremely successful in that little town and wow. made a damn good living and gave all of us a good living and i learned more from him than I learned through at Benedict College in South Carolina, NYU in New York City. Wow. Yes, right. Yeah, and, and but no buzzwords, no nothing. 
This is what you got to do. You have to do this. If you want to be this, you do this. And it was always like when he would come in at night at the end of the day and, you know, and I'd always get right under him and he's telling me about this and about that. And I was sucking it in like a sponge. Because nothing thing, flashing. Yeah. And that's the kind of people that I've always been admired of, those people that aren't flashing. Because one of the things that you probably learned in entrepreneurship is uh, you mentioned a earlier having worked with Martha Stewart. And I think one of the greatest things about entrepreneurs is that they're resilient. I mean, she was, you know, convicted yeah. and everything else. And now she's coming back just as strong as she was before she just went into strong. prison. Well, the business is a, the business is a shell of what it used to be. Right. Um, but she has made it. I mean, um, and that, so when I said earlier, I stayed there for nine, close to 10 years, it was the best job I ever had because I just really enjoyed working there. It was a young company, uh, entrepreneurial company, and we were always doing things, going into a new business, and it was just, it, it was so exciting. And I don't, I've never had a job that I enjoyed as much as that, but it came to a point after she came out of jail and all of the disruption that was going in and they were trying to bring it in, they brought in a new CEO, where the other CEO was a friend of mine, and it was a new mindset that come in. I said, I got to leave. And I quit on my own. And I didn't have a job. Mm. But I had six months of severance. And I said, you know what? I'll take a chance and see what comes next. Oh, yeah. And I've always been that way. So I'm not going to get up every Sunday. I'm not going to hate to go to bed on Sunday night because I hate to go to, to deal with Monday morning. When it gets to that point, I know it's time for me to leave. Yeah. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs? And also, I'd like to hear just your take on, you mentioned uh, a little bit about the country that you're in, but I've got friends that have actually traveled there. One of my good friends is a part of a band called Who's Bad, and he's traveled there. Um, it's a Michael Jackson cover band, and I can't remember if he traveled there with that band or uh, on solo, but he just loves Dubai. But I was just wondering your take on Dubai and also your advice for entrepreneurs. Well, you know, I look at Dubai kind of like I looked at New York, um, although I lived in the suburbs. Of New I lived in Jer New Jersey. And um, so you know how people live in New York. You don't really get to see New York the way other people, tourists will see it. And Dubai is kind of the same thing because before all of this happened, in a given month, I was only here maybe four or five days. Yeah, for the past two, two and a half to three years. I'm, I'm never really here um, because I'm, in, I'm either in Africa, I'm in Europe, I'm in uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur. And sometimes there have literally been times I would fly back in here at six in the afternoon, come home, repack, go back to the airport at three in the morning to fly someplace else. So I don't really, it's a great city. It's a beautiful city. I've said that it would probably look like any city if you could start from scratch and you had all the money in the world to do what you wanted to do and you have a mindset here, try something new. I'll give you an example. So a developer back here before all this stuff happened had built homes off the water, off the Arabian Sea, and the basement was submerged in the ocean. So literally you could be sitting in your bedroom and their entire wall is like an aquarium with all the fish. And these are the kind of projects they come with. It's not just building a building, but it's kind of like, how can we max this out? Or you've got the twisted building. You go down in, in, in the marina area, 
And if you ever come, you have to go to the Marina era. You got the big yachts there and all these apartments and it's just, so it's kind of like a rich person's paradise. Um, but again, you could still live here and you don't have to be rich because it's kind of like New York. You can live on Fifth Avenue or you can live in, on, well, I was gonna say Harlem. Harlem is just as expensive as Fifth Avenue is now because of gentrification. But you don't have to think about how you got wealthy areas and then you got workers areas. So it's kind of in between. I live in an area called Bergemont. It was probably, was one of the big areas at one time. Still a nice area, um, very strong middle-class area. Um, I'm very close to the Metro, um, which I used to ride all the time. And um, I have everything within walking distance. A lot of people want to live in the suburbs. And, you know, it's gated communities. I don't want that. I want to, I'm kind of a city person. I want to be able to walk to the cleaners, walk to the restaurant. I want to know the people that own the cleaners, know them by first name, you know, country boy style that you yeah. know everybody. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's that. So if you come here to visit, yeah, do, do stay downtown, you know, in the heart of all of it and do that. But also go into the neighborhoods, come to the Bergevin areas and go, come to the Fahiti areas and see how it used to be before everybody got rich. Hmm. Yeah. And what advice would you give to entrepreneurs? And tell us a little bit about your business as well. The um, strategy uh, group and everything, strategy focus group. Um, so, I, I, so as I said, I've been in human resources coming close to 20 years. So I worked for Martha Stewart as vice president of human resources. And then I went to Xerox as the uh, director of talent and HR solutions consulting practice. So my consulting is anywhere from leadership development to even this virus and getting companies back to work, helping them put together policies to go back to work. So anything within the organization, outside of the specialties like finance and marketing, I'm involved in, or I can help you with that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the area, and it's just a take off from everything I've been doing. And I've just been able to package it and say, here's what we do. Right. And um, so it's kind of worked from there. But the key for me was to get on the speaker circuit. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I was able to build up, that's what, yeah, well, it's, a, it's an old term, build up a Rolodex for people in all the countries because I've been to all the countries speaking. I don't do it anymore. Um, well, I do it unless, I don't do it now for free. I do it for a fee. So I'll come speak, but you're going to have to pay for me to come speak. I understand. What advice do you give to people? Well, one, I'd like to hear more advice that you got just for entrepreneurs in general, but I've actually, one of the things that I've had for a number of years is I've got an extensive Rolodex. Um, my uh, folks, and I'm in my late 50s, talk about the fact that that, that Rolodex should be something that I'm able to um, monetize in, in terms of making money off it and the contacts that I have. And I make a little bit of it. I mean, I've definitely used that those contacts to get guests for this show in addition to, of course, finding guests through three and others, but um, I'm not going to lie and say that I'm the best at monetizing that. So you were talking about that extensive Rolodex that you have. So how have you done a good job of actually using the Rolodex and the contacts that you've made in order to develop your business? I don't look at it as monetizing it. Um, so if I miss someone's Rolodex, don't, don't think of me as part of your monetization scheme. Right. I don't see it that way. The way I see it is this. Um, so I have this kind of, this show that's called a CEO series where I interview people. 
And so that has an extensive audience throughout the world. So I can pick up my phone. So when I say people in my Rolex, I want to be able to call you. And if you don't don't pick up, if you see my name, you're going to call me back. Right. Are you going to shoot me a WhatsApp message? That means we're connected. Right. And I bet so you I can more. have a thousand names, but if I, if I reach out to someone and they don't even like to give you an example, my daughter had a, a friend of hers in Istanbul, who's was on, in USA on a visa. And his father got sick. He didn't understand the protocol, so he just flew back to his country. And then when he tried to go back in, because he had left the country and didn't let them know, they canceled his visa. So now he's he was he's stuck in instant not stuck, but he's in Istanbul and he's trying to find a job. So my daughter was telling me the story. She said, "Can you help him?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Give me a day or so." So I went through my my Rolodex to see how many people I knew in senior positions that were in Turkey. And it came up to about 30 people. And I sent them a short note. And I said, hey, I said, I need, I need a favor. I need you to take a look at this gentleman's profile, family, friend, da da da, that's not the other. Really appreciate it. I sent that out to 30 people, 25 of them responded in some way. And that's what I'm talking about, having a strong Rolodex. Yep, and so, I agree with you. Yeah, so that I can reach out and you will come back to me. Um, so I, I use this theory called making a deposit. Mm. So you may call me and say, Ron, here's what I need. I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I do what I got to do, and it works for you. And you come and say, oh, my, thank you. So I said, no worries. So it's kind of like the scene in The Godfather when the guy tells him, he said, I'll do you this favor. But there'll come a day, and that day may never come, that I'll come back to you and ask you for a favor. So I work on that same principle. I will do for you. Called me for anything. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it as far as I can take it. But I will come back to you, possibly, and say, "Here's what I need." That could be next week. That could be six months, a year from now. Right. So you could have a Rolodex, but if you reach out and nobody responds to you, all you have is just names of people and contacts because you're not really connected. And that's what I find a lot of people do. And I mean, I was probably guilty of that when I first started collecting addresses and contacts was you collect the address, you make the contact, and then half the time you don't even know why you got the business card in the first place because that's all you've been doing is just collecting the business cards. But I'm making a point now of trying to make it a notice to who these people are, why I made that contact and things of that nature because too often folks will just grab, I go to festivals all the time and I probably got thousands if not hundreds of art collections but now i write down the artists what what i like about the artists or things of that nature so that it's not just a collection of a thousand artists the same with some of the musicians that i know and some of these yeah. are known musicians but and that i can reach out to and get them to do me be a favor or whatever but i have to write who they are and why why they're important and things of that nature yeah i always make a note on the back who it is and i send a note I type a note and say, it was great meeting you last night. Really enjoyed our conversation. If I could ever be of service, be sure and let me know. I copy that, I press send. I go to the next card, open it up, put the email address, and I copy the same thing in there. And I do that, and I do that, and I do that. Yeah, that's a great thing that you do in there. And I had a similar story that you mentioned, and this was years ago, about your uh, daughter and her friend. I had some friends 
many, probably about 10 to 15 years ago, they went to Canada. They're now divorced. It was a husband and wife. And I was actually pet sitting for them because I lived across the street from them in downtown Durham at the time. Now I live near the Duke campus. But um, at the time I was living downtown, I was pet sitting for their cat and dog. They had actually made the mistake of going to Canada across the border, um, which they could get across the border without their passport because at that time Canada had some, I guess, uh, looser restrictions and everything. Yeah. But coming back the other side, they, they needed the passport. <laughs> And they didn't have their passports with them. So they called me up. They knew I was pet sitting for them. I had been pet sitting for about a week. They were like, Mark, I need you to run across the street. I need you to grab um, the uh, passport. It's, at, it's in file cabinet A or whatever it was at. Get, get it back to us. Fax it to us so that we can actually come back home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was really interesting because I, I have not done as much. That one of my great regrets, and like I said, I'm hoping to correct it once the coronavirus is done, is that I haven't done as much international travel. I actually went with a uh, friend of mine on a cruise uh, to not this past um, winter. I mean, yeah, past winter, but the winter before. So like around New Year's, well, actually, it was two or three winters ago. I went on a cruise down to U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico. It was right after that storm, so shortly after okay. that, so U.S. Virgin yeah. Islands, Puerto Rico. Um, Grand Turks and one or two other places. But before that, the only other time I had gone overseas was Turkey because my dad was in the Air Force and he was stationed in Turkey. Um, I was actually born in 62. So I think my mom, my mom said when I was six months old or something like that, she, she and grabbed me. I was the only child at the time. I have a younger brother now, but um, grabbed me and we went over there and lived over there for two and a half years. So that was my okay. only foreign experience. But yeah, I yeah. do know that there are several countries Dubai being one of them, Kenya being others, Belize and uh, Brazil in South America, uh, mm. India, several others that I'm definitely hoping to visit uh, as I am growing older and want to do more world yeah. travel. My parents have actually yeah. done much more world travel than I have, but that's one of my great, great regrets is that I haven't done enough world travel. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was traveling before I did this. Um, you know, we go to Europe, we go to Rome one year, Paris the next. And uh, I did a little of the Caribbean, never been a cruise person. And, um, but now it's for business. So I go to these cities so much, I tend to know people there. And um, so now when I go there, I'm like kind of a local. Right. If I'm in KL, Kuala Lumpur, I use the public transportation, the metro, subway. I know people in the neighborhood. You know, kind of the Southern style. I still take that with me. I want to know the lady when my shirts need laundering. I want to know her. I could come in. I said, I need this back today. Trust right. me. And she said, run for you anything. So I, when I go to these cities, it's kind. Of, it's not like a tourist. You know, I go to Hong Kong. So people from Hong Kong send me a hotel office. They said, oh, my God, we really miss you. I said, you have no idea how much I miss you guys. I can't wait to get back. I know everybody on the little strip. And so it's not from, the, so I was there last time I was in Hong Kong when they was having all the uprising. I have photos of, cause I'm staying in this hotel and right above the room I was working out of, they were throwing bricks and total, total disruption. And it was something to see that these people were revolting against the government and no guns were used. Nobody was shot. They were using tear gas and rubber bullets and all these kinds of things. But I admired them for rebelling. 
Right. And I look at, and I'm just, I don't want to go political on it, but I look at what's going on in this country. You know, here's a man saying, take bleach. And nobody's, well, you know, he's just crazy. And I said, what if this was Hong Kong? Mm. And they were just talking about a law that they were trying to put into place. One, an entire city erupted as a result of that. But we've gotten so, like, I get, I get up in the morning and I turn the news on. Sometimes I don't even want, because it's like, okay, what happened now? Right. But I want to know, sort of, if I'm in a business meeting, somebody said, my God, Ron, you see what happened last night? I said, you know what? Let's have a, this meeting. I don't want to go there because I don't want to be distracted with that foolishness. Because oh. people over here have basically come to the conclusion that the United States has basically lost this way. Wow. And, 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 and a young lady told me, she says, you know, growing up as a kid, you always looked at the USA as the model country. Everybody wanted to go there. Everybody wanted to be a part of it. She said, but there's no, I would never send my kids. When, when my kids were coming up in high school, the goal was for them to go to a major university in the U.S. to study for four years. She says, you could, if you gave me a free scholarship, I wouldn't send my kids to, to the U.S. Now, that's something from people who are looking at this from afar. They don't want to be a part of any of it. You've got people walking around with carrying guns and Anyway, let's go back to the topic. Yeah, well, now, one of the other things that you talked about, and you're right, I agree with you on what you said about the U.S.'s, uh, the opinion of the other world with the United States and everything. But a lot of your business is in countries that is not necessarily, um, and of course, this is coming up even in our political landscape now, that are not necessarily capitalist countries. I mean, your business is definitely what people would consider a capitalist business, but how are you able to deal with business people that are socialists or whatever? Because I mean, um, that thing, that's one of the things with the United States is that everybody sees the, the Donald Trump, for lack of a better term, model of capitalism. Uh, I don't think that's correct though, because I, I'm in Singapore. Okay. Capitalist country. Kuala Lumpur, capitalist country. Hong Kong, capitalist country. Lagos, capitalist country. So for socialism, I don't, socialism may be from the people side because of their health care and all right. those things, but we're doing business right. because they have challenges within their company. So, and they're looking to get that fixed. And, and I think that that's what more people want is what those kind of countries are, in my opinion. It seems that they want the kind of model that is maybe a little bit more on the left or liberal side, if you want to, for lack of a better term, in terms of our way of caring for people and healthcare and things of that nature. And they're more apt to do business in the sense of trying to make money off of the business and do things that are the standard business approach. Well, one of the things that, see, from an org perspective, when you have a crisis, you look at the foundation under crisis and what worked, what didn't work, what could we fix? If you look at, uh, if you stretch that across a, a map from the time that virus started until the, whenever the end time is, but it may not be an end, it shows you that essential workers were important. Yep. And it shows you that on every given turn, you're trying to not give them a decent wage to live on. Right. And these are the people that carry the country through all of this. You'd know that your healthcare system is broken. 
Somebody is home and sick. They don't have insurance. They're afraid to go to the hospital because they don't have the money to pay. You didn't see that happening in Italy. You didn't see that happen in the UK when all these things happen with this virus it, because that's taken care of. So, so the fissures that cracked the system is healthcare and monetary equality, I'll call it. Right. You know, you try and get a bill passed when they were trying to get a decent bill passed, $15 an hour. Right. But when you look at the workers who was essential in bringing the country back, they were all the people that you were trying to deny to give a basic standard of living of $15 an hour. But on every turn, when that comes up, you want to block that. You wanted to block Obamacare. You almost had a, a, a fit when that went through. And you're still trying to get rid of that. But you don't have a decent healthcare system. And when you talk about socialism, they always want to equate it to Venezuela. But you go to Nordic countries, you go to Denmark, where it's listed as the happiest country on the planet. They're not working themselves to death. You're basically taking care of from the time you come here, come into the world, till the time you go out. Everything's taken care of. You're taxed, but that taxation comes back to help you live and create a better society, which is, in theory, what we should all want. Right. But when you have this mindset that I got mine, and I don't care about anybody else, you're gonna always have that. Wow. And this is why when I, as I looked at this and I'm reading my high-end research articles, white papers on what people are seeing, it exposed the illness of the US, yeah. the entire infrastructure. It exposed it all. Yeah, I didn't think it exposed the, uh way that we have wage disparity, not just among, like you said, the working people, like the um, people that work in McDonald's and the different fast food restaurants that need that $15 an hour just to live, but it also exposed the gap between women, because a lot of these essential workers are also women, like the nurses and things of that nature, and we know that there's yeah. a big gap between what women make and what men make, so it's also That's exposed right. that gap. Yeah, but see, uh, and I'm going to go political on this, but if you have a Republican administration, they're anti-everything like that. So if you're looking to try and fix all of this, it will never be fixed under that administration. Because even when it comes to this bailout package they sent through, you look at the fees that the banks received and the money was going to supposed to go to small businesses. Harvard University received $10 million and all the big chains and all these things received all this money, but the little small cleaners, mom and pop, which it was supposed to be for, they didn't get anything. So everything is geared towards that area of this here and anyone else that says, well, they're not earning it. So they're talking, they were talking about the food stamp program or whatever they call it now. They're going to have to remove the restriction that you can only get this if you're working, which Trump then put through and the Republicans put through said only you were able to, well, nobody's working now. Right. So if you had the, the regulation on there to say you can only get this if you're working, well, that means people can't eat. Yeah. And then when you say about being responsible, you should have been, you should have lived your lives better or saved more money. Well, hell, companies are going out of business and they had great years. And then one month they're going out of business. Mm -hmm. So you're telling citizens, essential workers that you should live better 
But here's companies that made millions and millions and they use the money for other things and now that they get hit, they say, oh, I need a handout too. And some, of, and some of the elderly aren't going to get there because they're having to depend on social security checks and checks that are mailed out. So some of them aren't going to get their money now for another, I think, six weeks to two months, if not longer than that, because it's a process that they've got to go through before they'll even get their money. And these are some of the folks that are more of the vulnerable population, but they're not exactly. going to get their money till weeks or months down the line. So if you look at the Nordic countries, if you look at, uh, I think it was New Zealand, a woman who's the head, that head of there, when they came up with their packages, within two weeks, people had the money. Right. Yeah. And they're giving, I think, I don't know whether it was Denmark or one other countries, $2,000. All the mortgage people had to hold back for six months. All loans had to hold back for six months. And they're giving people 2000 or so dollars. I don't know whether it's twice a month or every month for the next six months. Right. But, but meanwhile, in the U.S., now they go back to the tail again. This one wants this, but it's just, it's a mess. It's, just, it's insane, and I don't know how we're going to come out of it, but I'm sure we will come out of it some kind of way. I do want to get ready to wrap it up and everything, but I greatly enjoyed having this conversation with you. If you could uh, just give um, both the way that people can reach you if they've got business opportunities and what kind of things you're looking forward to having businesses and what kind of businesses do you need to have service or that you want to service i should say and also i had asked earlier just any advice that you want to give to up-and-coming entrepreneurs and ron i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and uh i'm glad that you were able to do this for me so i greatly appreciate you okay thank you so much thank you um i can be reached at uh my web my website is strategy focus group if you google strategy focus group it comes up all my contact information is there and for anyone there out here that's thinking of trying to do something, I'm going to give you my mother's phrase, the journey of a thousand miles begin with one step. Go get licensed. Start sending out some marketing plans. You have to start doing something and stop telling the story of what you want to do if you don't want to apply action to it. Right. Because otherwise, it's just a conversation. That's all it is. I agree. Thanks a lot, Okay, Ron. man. Peace. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye.